going to devote the whole of the time to the outline of the book of Zephaniah. We have already spent two evenings um, in covering the authorship and date and the background of the prophet and the key to the book. Now we come this evening to the outline. I put it on the other side, very simply, of this form. It's a very simple outline, indeed. And we need to note, as I think we've mentioned two or three times in our studies in this book, that it begins with a picture of the, lo of the Lord going forth in the white heat of his fury to destroy, to devour, to consume. But it ends with a picture of the Lord amongst the most sublime in the whole of the Bible. We ought to note that the first two sections of the book of Zephaniah in verse 18 and then in chapter 3 or, or, or verse 18 of chapter 1 and verse 8 of chapter 3 end with the fire of the Lord's jealousy destroyed and the last section ends with the jealousy of the Lord satisfied and satisfying. You will remember that the key to this book is the jealousy of the Lord. Not that hateful and poisonous thing that we often think of when the word jealousy is mentioned, but that zeal of the Lord's love, that jealousy of an all-consuming passion which will not allow the object of its love to be spoilt or marred or in any way come short of what it in its love desires for it. Now you will see that there um, that the outline of Zephaniah is threefold. First, the proclamation, the jealousy of the Lord leading to judgment, Zephaniah 1, the whole chapter from verse 1 to verse 18. And then the appeal, the jealousy of the Lord calling for repentance, Zephaniah 2 from verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8. And lastly, the promise, the jealousy of the Lord satisfied and satisfying. You will see that the first verse of chapter 1 is just a superscription. Now shall we take the book of Zephaniah, if you will have it open before you, and shall we look together this evening, section by section, at this book. First of all, the proclamation, the jealousy of the Lord, leading to judgment. You'll find that summed up in verse 18. The day of the Lord's wrath, the whole land, or whole earth, devoured 
by the fire of his jealousy. Zephaniah proclaims a total and terrible judgment. It is to be sudden and full, and it is to be a complete end of all evil and contamination. The judgment that Zephaniah proclaims is not just a local judgment. It's not just something that is um, uh, one of a series of crises or uh, troubles. The judgment he describes is absolutely universal. It is catastrophic in its extent. And if you look at verse 2, you will um, see straight away verse 2 and verse 3 and compare those two verses with verse 18, you get something of this idea of total destruction. Note, for instance, these words. I will utterly sweep away everything. Utterly sweep away everything from off the face of the earth says the Lord. And then look at uh, further on in verse 2, I will sweep away man and beast, bird and fish. Now never before has there been a judgment proclaimed quite so total as Zephaniah's. Even the natural creation, even the um, universe itself is going to be affected as it were by this, this catastrophic judgment of God. Every single thing is to be consumed. So note the words. It is to be a devouring in the fire of his jealousy. That's in verse 18, the last part. The f uh, in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. This word consumed means to be eaten up. It will be eaten up. It will be devoured. It will be completely consumed everything then I want you to notice too the word in the American revised standard version I will cut off mankind from off the face of the earth I think in your version it says I will cut off man uh, from the earth I will cut off mankind and the idea behind it is not just men but the whole race. Now, in other words, Zephaniah is describing a judgment as complete as the one that took place in the day of Noah. Only this time he does not at any point connect water with it. He connects fire with it. And it is very interesting that when you come to the New Testament, Peter himself tells us that there was one very great judgment in world history, which was by water, in which the whole face of the earth was consumed. It was destroyed. It was drowned. But he says, there is coming a day when there's going to be a judgment of fire. Not of water, but of fire. When everything is to be consumed. Now, it is very interesting to note here that... Um, Zephaniah uses the words in verse 18, a full, sudden end. 
a full, sudden end. I'm reading again from the American Revised Standard Version. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full, yea, sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now this is the judgment that Zephaniah proclaims. It's not small, it's not local, it's not just a, a one a, a kind of historic crisis. No, this is something absolutely total and universal in its extent. It will not just be mankind that will be destroyed, but it will be even beasts, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the marine kingdom, everything is to be consumed in this judgment of the fire of the Lord's jealousy. Then I want you to notice that Judah and Jerusalem, whilst they are the cause of this jealousy of the Lord, for his love is set upon them, are not to escape. His jealousy is going to purge and purify them. If you look at verse uh, 4, first part of verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then verse 12, the first part, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. With lamps. And I will punish the men who are thickening upon their leaves. So you see, there is evidently um, to be a very real including of God's people in this judgment of the Lord. Now why is there to be this devouring of his jealousy? Why? In verse 17, we have the answer. Because they have sinned against the Lord. He says, I will, bring I will bring distress on men so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Now this, because they have sinned against the Lord, if you look very carefully into this chapter, if you go away and study it, you will discover includes both the saved and the unsaved. The Lord is absolutely clear on that. It, it is, whether it is the sin of the redeemed or whether it is the sin of the unsaved, it is sin against the Lord that has brought this judgment. Now the end may be different. The judgment upon the world may be a total end, but the judgment in, upon the redeemed of the Lord will purge and purify and bring them into a new position all together. I want you to note then, having said that, that the sin of the unsaved is undefined. <clears throat> For instance, let us look at uh, verse 2 and verse 3, and also from verse 14 to verse 18. If you look through those verses, you will not find anywhere the sin of the unsaved defined. It is left as general. They have sinned against the Lord. Therefore, this terrible, terrible and catastrophic judgment is going to come upon mankind and upon the whole earth. 
There is only one little word that we have, and over it there is controversy, that you will find in verse, um, verse 3. I will overthrow the wicked, says the American Revised Standard Version, and then in the margin it says a correction. The Hebrew is a stumbling block with the wicked. The, the standard version and the authorized version and the English revised all maintain what is the Hebrew rendering, which is that the Lord will, and he says, I will consume man and beast, I will consume the birds of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. The stumbling blocks with the wicked. Now this is very, very interesting. This word is only used once elsewhere in the whole of the Bible. And it is used in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 6. And there it is translated ruin. Ruin. You'll have to look it up if you want to look through. And this word is a word used always of idols and idolatry. The Jew always called it the stumbling block or the ruin. It was the ruin. And the thought was this, you see. The idol, the idols of the nations, were their gods. They were their gods. They had taken the place of the living God in the life and worship and being, if you like, of the nations. But as soon as those idols were brought into the midst of God's people, they became his rivals. They became his rivals. Immediately those idols were set up in, within the confines of the promised land. Those idols, that idolatry, became a rival to the Lord. And therefore it was always called the stumbling block or the thing that stumbles. The thing that stumbles. Because not only does it blind the unsaved, but it brings a terrible division into the affections of God's people so that they try to serve God and mammon. So that somehow or other there are other things that have come to take the place of the Lord. The Lord is there because you must always remember this, that this stumbling block, this ruin as it is called, um, never took the actual place of the Lord. Oh, no, the devil was never as stupid as that in his dealings with God's children. They always came alongside the Lord. So the Lord was given a wife and a family. See? And in the house of the Lord, idols were set up. And on the high places, the Lord had his wives. Baal and Astarte. So, when you begin to understand that, I think that you come a little bit nearer to what is the sin of the unsaved. Now, mark very carefully what I'm saying. Why is the Lord judging them? Because they have sinned against the Lord. But why must he destroy? Because they are a consistent source of contamination. And whilst they are there, God's people will never be safe. They are a consistent and persistent influence for evil. 
So the Lord says, I'm going to destroy everything. I'm not going to have half measures. I'm not just going to analyze uh, uh, things a little and try to sort of dissect that from that. No, I'm going to purge the whole thing, heavens and the earth, with fire. I shall destroy everything in a terrible holocaust of fire. But the end will be this, that he will have destroyed the source of evil. Because, you see, in the end we're told that the devil himself will be cast into a pit a bottomless pit, and it says the smoke thereof goeth up forever and forever. Fire. Fire again. Consumed in fire. And everything and everyone who in any way is related to the devil, in any way is in alliance with the devil, has any part in his kingdom, will have their place in that Now that's what Zephaniah is really trying to get over to us. That you see the jealousy of the Lord is such a strong thing, is a tremendous thing, that he's not going to allow this, this mess that we call human life to continue forever and ever and ever. So that there shall be perpetuated for generation upon generation without end the misery and the unhappiness of humanity? Oh no. No. There is coming a day, says Zephaniah, when the Lord is going to consume everything. It will be a more final judgment than even that judgment in the day of Noah. And when the Lord has finally acted in that way, there will be no more evil. Pain, mourning, sorrow, those first things, those former things, will have passed away in the fire. And out of the fire, will have emerged a new heaven and a new earth. Now it is most interesting. I know this is only an aside and I shouldn't go into it because it's not really dealing with Zephaniah. But you see, it is interesting, you know, we speak of a baptism of water, a baptism of the Spirit. We speak of water and fire. The Lord spoke, you know, of someone baptized with water. I will come and baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Do you know that the heavens and the earth have been baptized in water and are waiting their baptism in fire? And when that baptism of fire has taken place, the heavens and the earth will emerge, born anew. Out of it will come something in which there will be no evil. There will be no influence that can contaminate. Now that, I think, is very important. And then, um, if we also look, we shall discover that the sin of God's children is defined from verse 4 to verse 13. A list of the sins of God's children is, in fact, defined made. They are sins of omission, sins of commission. They are outward sins and inward sins. They are corporate sins and they are personal sins. You see, the Lord says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord by uh, uh, swear by the Lord and yet swear by milk 
Now, the whole thought there is just simply compromise, that's all. Baal has come in alongside the law. There's a mixture. We are serving both God and mammon. Something else has entered. And there is a division of loyalties, a division of affections, a division of service, and the resulting misery. So here you have a people who swear by the Lord and by Milcom. Milcom was the god, Moloch, who demanded child sacrifice so that newborn babes were placed into white-hot hands of the, of, the, of the statue, heated up. Children were flung in to a, a fire that was always alight in the midst of the idol. They died. And these people of God were swearing by Jehovah and by Moloch trying somehow or other to combine the two things. And then you have those who have turned back at the end of verse 5, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Then in verse 8 you've got those who array themselves in foreign apparel. It was all the rage of the day to dress like Assyrians or like Egyptians. And this is one of the things the prophet says that is a sin in the eyes of the Lord. You see, these people were not absolutely separate unto the Lord in spirit. There's a, there was a lot about them that was just like the rest, just like the world. And then in verse 9, you have again another sin listed. These are all the sins of God's children. The unsaved, their sin on the whole is undefined. Now, this is the, everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. The Hebrew is skip. They skip over the threshold. See, they've been sent by their masters to go into other houses at night and steal. When they come back, they're very joyful about it. They've done a good job, they say. So they skip over the threshold, you see, and fill their master's house with booty. This was quite a common practice. It may shock some of you, but it was quite a common practice for the rich and uh, noble people to send their servants down to the poor and just simply plunder them and that they had absolutely no recourse to justice or anything else because of bribery and corruption. So these are the sins of God's people and then perhaps something that will shock all of us. One of the sins that God speaks of is in verse 12. He will punish the men who are thickening upon their leaves. That's quite an inward thing, isn't it? Just thickening on their leaves. Now, wine, when it's thickening on its leaves, is, is just being left standing, that's all. Being left standing for a very long time. And one of the sins of God's people is when they just stand still and do nothing. They become absolutely passive, absolutely inactive. They just stand still, and gradually all the sediment in the wine goes down to the bottom. Great, you've seen it probably in a jar where you see a whole lot at the bottom, that thick of sediment where something's been left for a long, long time, it's just all gone. And that's like a lot of us. Now, of course, we would probably say, oh, well, of course, it's failure. God says it's sin. God says it's sin. Here you have a list of sins. What has happened to these people? Well, you see, they've noticed the forbearance and the patience of the Lord so much that they say in their heart, or they don't dare say it with their lips, but they say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, and he won't do evil. In other words, they were saying, oh, it's obvious, you see, the Lord's just not uh, working, he's not active, so he won't necessarily bless me and he won't judge me. I wonder how many are like that in this room. 
They've just been standing still and a sediment has collected spiritually on the bottom. And in your heart, you're just simply saying, the Lord won't bless me, nor will he judge me. I'm just on the shelf. Exactly. Thickening on the leaves. You're on the shelf. You feel it, you know it. Now, God says, it's nothing to do with him at all. It's to do with you. The Lord says, I will punish you for that. That's a sin. So you have this list of sins defined of God's people. The prophet goes quite fully into these different things. And really the root of it all, if you will look carefully into it, is first a falling away from the Lord in the heart. And secondly, a compromise. Now these two things are always linked. Compromise nearly always leads to an indifference to the Lord. The first way it begins is very small. Something else presents itself to you in your life with the Lord, which at the time doesn't seem very important, it doesn't seem very significant, but in fact it is Baal. And it starts, and before long, there are, like, as it were, a company of idolatrous priests in your life. Before long, you're swearing by two things. In other words, you don't do anything without taking into account two things, the Lord and these other things. And so, after a while, there's no more inquiring of the Lord. There's no more seeking of the Lord. The heart has gone back. Before long it comes outward. There's foreign apparel. It becomes more and more obvious that your heart is falling away, falling away from the Lord. Before long, corruption becomes a little more evident. There are things that you're actually getting mixed up in. And then there's an attitude to the Lord that because he waits and waits, and allows you to go so far, you think you'll get away with it. You think the Lord is altogether such a one as yourself. But he's not. And Zephaniah says, when this day comes, when this time comes, the Lord will search Jerusalem with lamps. And this is awfully interesting, because, you see, it's a picture of wine. And it's a picture of the Lord, as it were, going down to the cellars with a lantern, with a lamp, see? looking all over round the cellar for the bottles that are on the shelves, that are where there's a thick sediment at the bottom. See? The Lord says, I think he'll do that with his people. He will search through them, you see, search through them. You know, the writer of the Hebrews takes this up and he says about that great shaking that's going to come, that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. See, the Lord says, I will shake both the heavens and the earth. What is he doing? He's finding out those that are thickened upon the leaves, those who are on the shelf, those who become static, those whose devotion to the Lord has just, just become a name, a thing of history. Well, all this is in this little book of Zephaniah. And the key to this universal judgment that we discover in Zephaniah chapter 1 is the Lord's jealousy. Now, this is a, a, a very hard thing, generally speaking, for God's children to accept. They seem to have an idea that somehow or other, the Lord delights to judge us. He delights to sort of take the rod to us. But you see, <clears throat> really, it is the jealousy of God that is behind 
It is the fire of his jealousy. It's the jealousy of an all-consuming passion. And do you know that for your sakes he will destroy everything so that you can never again become recontaminated? There's coming a day when the Lord is going to put evil right out of existence. Right out of existence. Never be mentioned or seen again. It's a very wonderful thing at the end of this uh, uh, book of Zephaniah. Um, uh, it is said to Zion, Thou shalt fear evil no more. And the Hebrew is see. Thou shalt fear or see. The thought is twofold. You, you, you'll not only not fear evil, but you'll not see it again. No more. Gone. Finished. Behind God's back. And when a thing is behind God's back, no one else can see it. It's gone. Finished. It is the jealousy of his love and on the one hand, this jealousy is destroying all those consistently perverting things. Now, you see, you go into your office. You go out into the world. You might want to go on with the Lord. You might love the Lord. But there's a little bit of something in us all. Just sin in our memories. And out we go into the world. And all the time, spiritual forces are playing on those somber dark moments. Advertisements we see, words we hear, stories that somehow come to us, all kinds of things, just the very atmosphere of the world, even the way perhaps people even dress, all kinds of things, they have all an impression upon us. You see, it is this consistently perverting force in the world. And the jealousy of the Lord on the one hand is in the end going to destroy it. And mark you, he's going to destroy it so that it not one jot or tittle of it is left. Not a, not, a, not a straw is left. He's going to purge the very heavens and the earth. Just as if you and I were moving into a new house. Not a new house, but a house that we'd bought. And somehow there'd been a lot of trouble there and uh, perhaps certain amount there and we've got a lot of money and we had the whole thing absolutely done out disinfected from top to bottom scrubbed, painted, redecorated the lot so that there's no possibility of recontamination no, when the Lord's finished there'll be le left nothing that can, that can pervert or corrupt and on the other hand the jealousy of his love is purifying his own from all taint. All taint. He, he comes to, the, to Jerusalem and Judah and his whole objective is to completely separate them from the dross. Shall I put it this way? To separate what is of God from what is not. And the jealousy of the Lord's love is always refining. Now, when you refine gold or silver, what do you do? You do two things. You boil out the scum, the impurity, and you separate the pure gold or silver. Now, that's the jealousy of the Lord's love. On the one hand, he's boiling out, if you like, the scum getting rid of the impurities and putting it on one side. You know, 
in the crucible of the goldsmith or the silversmith in these days, and still in some parts of the East, that, that gold which is heated till it becomes molten liquid finally bubbles until all that is dirt, impurity, which you couldn't see before in the old piece of gold, you would have probably thought it was wonderful, has all come to the surface. And there's an old story that always used to help me. It said that the old goldsmiths, they used to wait until the whole surface was covered with a film of scum. And then they would just wait a little longer and then gently blow. And the scum would go like a skin to the other side. And when they could see their face perfectly reflected, that was the end. The trial was over. This is just what the Lord's doing in the jealousy of his love. He puts us in so the scum comes up and he gently blows. So the skin of dirt and impurity is separated from what is of himself. What is pure silver and pure gold? And then, as soon as it's done, we're taken off. Taken out of the trial. His jealousy for his own is so great that he will go to any lengths to have well, now, that's the first chapter of Zephaniah. When we come to the next section of, of Zephaniah, we, we are taken right through from the beginning of chapter 2, right through to <coughs> chapter 3 and verse 8. And I have taken one verse here to sum up this um, section, which I call the appeal, the jealousy of the Lord, calling for repentance. I've taken verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye will be hid. It may be ye will be hid. Now you will notice that this section opens with an appeal to the whole nation. In the American Revised Standard Version it reads like this, Come together, and hold assembly, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like the drifting chaff, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now what is, the, what is Zephaniah's appeal? His cry is to the whole people of God, oh, that you would come before the Lord on one of those great days of repentance and fasting, and just humble yourselves before the Lord. He calls them a shameless nation. The word is very interesting. It means a not desirable nation. A not desirous. This is very difficult. You'll find in all the versions of something different. Shameless nation. Then Zephaniah goes on and appeals to the remnant within the nation. Now this is very interesting. Because as Professor Ellison says, it's as if... It is, it, is, it is as if Zephaniah realized that the whole nation were too far gone. But he speaks of those who do the Lord's commands. In verse 3, you read this. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the land, who do his commands or keep his ordinances. And the authorized version says, who have wrought his judgment. Evidently, Zephaniah sees that there is a nucleus, a band of people, the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are in the land. 
They are the afflicted, the meek, the humble, the lowly. But they are doing the commands of the Lord and walking before him. Now, you will notice that it is to these he appeals. And it is very interesting that he should appeal to them in the way that he does. He appeals to them to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to seek meekness. Because, he says, there is a possibility you will be healed. Now, I cannot believe that it is a coincidence that here in Hebrew we have Zephaniah's name. Zephaniah means the, the, the Lord has hidden. And here he makes his great appeal to this remnant, this little nucleus amongst the people. Oh, he says, you may be hidden if you will only seek the Lord, if you will only seek this character of righteousness and meekness. You will remember that the prophet Micah, also whose name meant who is like the Lord, plays upon his name in his, in his prophecy when he says, who is like unto the Lord? pardon of sin and passeth over transgression and so on. Here you have something of the same thing and I believe that in many ways it underlines the importance that the Holy Spirit has attached to this being hid in the day of the Lord's anger. There is a place where we can be hid and it is in the Lord. And will you notice that these are besought to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to seek meekness. Their seeking of the Lord is explained in terms of righteousness and meekness. Now, how shall they be hidden? How will you be hidden? How will I be hidden? We shall be hidden in our seeking of the Lord. Let me put it this way. In our godliness. You know what godliness means? Godlikeness. Christ-likeness. Zephaniah was really saying to these people, become like the Lord, seek the Lord, become identified with the Lord, imbibe the very spirit and the character of the Lord, become like him righteous and meek, and you may be hidden in that day of the anger of the Lord. Now you must remember this, that in that day of the jealousy of God's anger, the only thing that you and I will be able to flee to is the Lamb. He is the only one in whom we'll be able to hide. And oh, that there might be about us something of the Lamb. This is what is meant here. You see, look, righteousness, meekness, righteousness, meekness, these two are not often wedded together. In the world, you don't find these two going together. You do find naturally righteous people, upright people, people naturally noble, naturally upright, but they're very rarely meek. And you do sometimes find naturally humble people. It's a very, very rare occurrence, I might say. But there are, there are those, now and again, who are naturally humble. But you very rarely ever find a combination of these two. It is what I believe I've mentioned in one or two of the past studies, and uh, on Sunday morning, I believe, at one point, it is what I call the lamb-lion character. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, you will discover what I mean. 
In chapter 5, verse 5, the elders said to John, Weep not, behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath overcome. The lion hath overcome. Then John looked, and what did he see? In the midst of the throne, he saw the lamb, the lion. But he saw the lion as a little lamb. Now, do you remember our studies on the cherubim? Do you remember that in the book of Ezekiel, however you look at the cherubim, from whatever point you take of the compass, you see the cherubim as a different thing. From one point you see it as an eagle. You come over on this side, you look, and suddenly it becomes an ox. You go over to the other side and you look, and now it's a lion. Then you go another place and you see, it's the face of a man. The most amazing thing. Here you've got the same scriptural um, thing, if you like. It's a scriptural almost method of, of symbolizing something. On the one side, you see the lion. On the other, the lamb. And this is what is meant in, in um, Psalm 45. And, I, and uh, um, I can't remember what verse it is. Where it says, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O thou might ride forth in behalf of truth and righteousness. Meekness. Meekness, righteousness. And the word in Hebrew, we just can't put it into English, is meekness, righteousness. All one word. Meekness, righteousness. It's just we can't put it into it. We can only say, here is the lamb-lion character, or the lion-lamb character, however you like to put it. Now that's exactly what God wants in you and me. He wants a righteousness which is absolutely real, but turn the coin, and it's <coughs> meekness. One coin, but it has two sides. Righteousness, meekness, but the same material. I think some people seem to think that the Lord is righteous at one moment, truth, strength, and another moment terribly meek and mild and lowly and gentle. No, no, no. It's the same person. And the same person, the same life, the same character gives rise to righteousness and meekness. And when the lamb comes into us, when as in the Passover we start to feed upon the lamb, when we start to eat the lamb, then something of the lamb-lion character of Christ comes into us. This is Zephaniah's great cry, to seek this God-likeness. Now, I, I wonder whether some perhaps just uh, uh, are a little bit reserved about what I've said in this, it, it is everywhere through scripture in various ways. I can give you a number of scriptures if you take a pencil and paper. I'm afraid we haven't got time to go through them, but I'll give them to you and you can look through them. The one that I love that sums this all up is in John 1, 14 and 17. It says this, he is full of grace and truth. You've got the same thing. Grace and truth. Meekness, righteousness. You've got the same combination of opposites in one person full of grace and truth. And then again, would you look up in, in scriptures where, what it says about mercy and truth. Or loving kindness and truth. I'll give you a whole list of scriptures if you want to look at them. Psalm 25 verse 10, Psalm 57, 3 verse 3 and verse 10, Psalm 61 verse 7, Psalm 89 verse 14, 
Psalm 108, verse 4. Psalm 115, verse 1. I will read two for you. Um, Psalm 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is speaking of the Lord. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And then I want also to turn you to one other thing, which is a remarkable, in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 6. By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Isn't that interesting? By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Now, this is the character of the lamb as opposed to the character of the serpent. That's the point. The character of the lamb is opposed to that of the serpent. All that is of the serpent must be judged because of its inherent character. All that is of the lamb will overcome. Again, because of its inherent character. This really is what we have in the prophet Zephaniah. He's really telling us that if we want to escape judgment, then we have got to seek a kind of character. We've got to seek the character of the lamb as opposed to that of the serpent. Now, we've all got the character of the serpent. It's in us to some measure. The character of the lamb is not natural and doesn't belong to us. So this is what Zephaniah means when he tells us to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness and to seek meekness. Because by so doing, we shall be hid of the Lord. And one can't help but think of the book of Revelation when it tells us that those who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes are going to be preserved, are going to be hidden. All the way through, you've got these overcoming who are hidden and preserved because they have not only been justified by the Lamb, but have become Lamb-like themselves. Then again, in this part of, of uh, Zephaniah, you have uni a universal devastation described very swiftly. In, from verse 4 to verse 15, you will find you've got all points of the compass. On the west, Phil the Philistines. On the east, Moab and Ammon. On the south, Ethiopia, and the north, Assyria. You have the nations that are near, Philistines, and the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and the nations that are far, Ethiopia and Assyria. Now, it's very interesting that the Jews used to use the word Ethiopia to mean the ends of the earth. That was how they used to say, if you were going for a very long journey, you were going all the way to Ethiopia, you're going to the ends of the earth. And so here, there is described a judgment which is total. It takes in all points of the compass. The devastation is complete. Now here's the point. In verse 7 and verse 9, we discover that the remnant with this lamb-lion character possess the land. Verse 7, we read, The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall pasture. The last part of the verse, the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Then again, the last part of verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation 
shall possess them. Now this again is very interesting because do you know what the Lord says in what we know as the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And then he puts next to that Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now I want to tell you another very interesting thing. In Psalm 37, you get this. Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I expect all of you love Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the land and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. But just wait, just wait. David's got something else to say in his old age. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The same thing. It is this lamb-lion character which in the end is going to possess the inheritance. On the one side the righteous, on the other side the meekness, wedded together. This is that which is going to inherit. Nor, also we must make note, will Jerusalem escape that judgment. Because, says Zephaniah, of her refusal to accept instructional correction. This is in chapter 3, from 1 to 7. If you look at verse 3, it says this. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to the Lord, to God. Now this reveals the mercy of the Lord. Because... He has wanted to forgive and pardon his people. But they will not accept correction or instruction. Mark those words. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the law. She will not draw near to her God. Do you know that describes some of us? This is the position we can get into. Where we will listen to no one. Accept no correction. We're not really basic. We're not trusting in the Lord. And we will not come into the light. And then you see in verse 7, you get this other word of the Lord connected with this, with Jerusalem. I said, surely she will fear me. She will accept correction. She will not lose sight of all that I've enjoined upon her. What did the Lord do? He judged some of the nations around her in the hope that she would take a lesson and accept correction. But she would not. Now I want you also to notice, too, that the state of things in Jerusalem was so terrible that every class was uh, involved. In chapter 3 and verse 3 and 4, you have her princes, her judges, her prophets, her priests, all are evil. All are evil. Now then, in verse 5, we discover this. It is said, The Lord in the midst of her is righteous. He will not do iniquity. Morning by morning doth he bring his justice to light. He faileth not. Now this is interesting because you see in spite of all her refusal to accept correction, in spite of the fact she won't draw near to the Lord, the Lord is in the midst. In spite of the fact that her princes and judges and prophets and priests are all evil, are all turned aside, the Lord is still in the midst and he will not do wrong. 
They may all do wrong. His own people. His own, may I put it in, in a New Testament way, the very members of Christ may all do wrong. But the Lord himself is still in the midst and he will not, he will not himself become involved in the wrong. It reminds one of the Lord walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He remains in the midst. If there is anything at all of removal, it's not him, it's the lampstand. So, you see, this in many ways is both wonderful and terrible. You see, either he forsakes us and destroys us, or he remains and purifies. There's no other alternative. And this really is exactly what um, Zephaniah is trying to tell God's people. The Lord is in the midst and he's going to stay there. He's not going to fail. He's going to do something about this. So he's going to deal with the situation. And you know, the jealousy of the Lord's love for his church is both, is really her salvation and her security. We would have no salvation if the Lord wasn't jealous. Because he would have given us up. He would have withdrawn his salvation. But it's because he set his love upon us that he will never take away our salvation. He stays and purifies us. It's tremendous. This is the security of us who are the Lord's. His jealousy calls us to seek him with all our heart that we may completely possess the inheritance. But if not, then that same jealousy will judge the mixture and compromise in us and will rid us of the poison in the end. Now that is the second thing, the great appeal of the Lord, the call for repentance. He's really crying to us, come, I'm not going to leave, I'm not going to leave. I'm in the midst, I'm going to remain in the midst. I call to you to humble yourself. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. You may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. But if you will not, I'm still not leaving. I'll deal with you. I'll purify you. And so we come to the last section of Zephaniah, chapter 3, from verse 9 to the end. The promise, the jealousy of the Lord's love, satisfied and satisfying. And I have just taken really a few uh, phrases from the verse 14 to verse 17 to sum up this section. And I put it like this. Sing, O daughter of Zion. The Lord in the midst will sing over thee with joy. Will joy over thee with singing. Sing, O daughter of Zion. The Lord in the midst of thee will joy over thee with singing. Now we ought to note the way that this last section begins. In this version, the revised version, it begins like this, verse 9, For then, now mark it, for then will I turn to the people to pure language. In the revised standard version, it begins like this, Yea, at that time, wherever we look, it has the same thought. There is a distinct connection with what precedes. In other words, the very last um, phrase of the preceding um, 
paragraph was the fire of his jealousy. Fire of his jealousy. When it's devoured, when it's consumed the whole earth, then will I turn to the peoples a pure language. His jealousy satisfied, and it's going, and it's satisfying. In place of universal judgment, there is now universal blessing. And this is very interesting if you will only just um, follow it very swiftly through these last verses. You will note in verse 9, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Do you know what, what, what that harks back to? Babel. It goes right back to one of the first judgments of human history when the Lord divided the human race by um, language. I will turn to the law, to the peoples, a pure language or a pure lip. And uh, all of them, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, serve with one consent. The Hebrew is shoulder. One consent. That is, they'll put their, their shoulder to the task as one man. Universal blessing instead of universal judgment. That's tremendous. The nations are going to call upon him and serve him. They're going to call upon the name of the Lord and they're going to serve him with one accord. There's going to be harmony. The whole creation is in harmony. Why? Because the Lord has put behind his back all that before was evil. It's gone. It's finished with. It's over. It's destroyed. Now the Lord has a universal blessing in place of universal judgment. The whole creation's in harmony. It's wonderful. With one accord. And then you will notice the center of all is the Lord in Zion. The Lord in the midst of thee, three times, two, uh, twice this comes in this little passage, and twice more in reference to something else. In the midst of thee, the Lord in the midst of thee, the Lord in Zion is the center of this universal blessing. We are told that everything will now flow now to, to, to the Lord in Zion. It is rather interesting because many of the other prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, others, speak of this turning of the nations in the end to the Lord and they're all serving him with one consent. It's the Lord in Zion that is the center and the heart of the whole thing. And it's a purified and perfected Zion. There's no blemish. There's no spot. There's no wrinkle. It's all God. He's in the midst. This time he's in the midst not to judge and there'll never be any more need of judgment. He's in the midst to enjoy himself. You know, in the whole history of, hu of, of humanity, the Lord has never since the garden been in the midst and really enjoyed himself. Always, uh, as it were, on the periphery, upon, on the circumference, there have been dark satanic forces waiting to pervert, waiting to contaminate, waiting to corrupt. Now they're gone. They're in a bottomless abyss, and as Spurgeon said, you know what it means, a bottomless abyss? When you're thrown into a bottomless abyss, you never come to the bottom. He'll just be going on and on and on and on and on and on and all the rest of the evil as well. You'll never see the end of it. You'll never hear the end of it. It's just out of sight. Gone. 
over Dunlop. You see, the center of it all is the Lord in the midst of Zion. A purified and perfected Zion. She's the bride of God. Dressed now beautifully without spot and blemish or wrinkle. Shame, failure, sin is all behind the thing of the past. The proudly exulting ones that led to haughtiness in the, in the Mount of Moab have all been taken out, torn out of the midst. And we'll see that again here in these verses. The enemy's been destroyed so that she can lie down, as it were, in her pastures without any fear anymore of the enemy. It's all behind. And instead, there's a refined remnant who by the grace of God have overcome the lamb-lion character in one. It's in the throne. It's got there. Now this is really very wonderful because this proudly exulting, this proud exultancy, you know, you get it. I've seen it here. You, you can see it in people. As soon as we think we've seen something, as soon as we think we've got some knowledge of God's purpose, we start to rise. The word, the Hebrew is rising, arising. Something comes up, we're it. We're it. Leads to a haughtiness, and the Hebrew is highness, that's all. Highness. Head and shoulders above the rest. Rest of God's people. Nothing. We're in the mouth of the Lord. We understand what Zion is. Proudly exulting ones who've led to a haughty spirit. Torn out. Torn out. Nothing like it there. What has the Lord left in their place? He has left an afflicted and poor people who take refuge in the name of the Lord. That's very interesting. The uh, revised ver uh, standard version puts humble and lowly. But do you know what it is? It's meekness. Do you know what meekness is? Listen, meekness is to be afflicted to such a degree that you have no more strength. It is to become so impoverished of self-sufficiency that you can do nothing. You're poor in spirit. It is that you take positively refuge in the name of the Lord. Your only cry is, the Lord is my life. The Lord is my nature. The Lord is my glory. The Lord is my answer. Why do you take refuge in the name of the Lord? Let me tell you, if, if my name is a wonderful name, if my name means anything, I can exult in it. I can talk about it. I'm Lance Lambert. I know this. I've been saved. I am. But when I've been knocked about, when I've become afflicted, and I've become poor, impoverished to such a degree that I'm poor in spirit. Then I flee all the time to take refuge in the name of the Lord. And to me the greatest wonder is that I'm found in Christ. And I'm thankful all the time I'm in Christ. And he is my glory. He is my glory. Do you see? This is the kind of people who've got the lamb-like character. And then you see also in verse 13, there's righteousness. They do no iniquity or wrong. There's no lie. They utter no lie. And there's no deceit in their mouths. What an interesting 
the explanation of righteousness. Do no wrong, utter no lie, no deceit in the mouth. I don't know whether it finds you out. It finds me out. Do no wrong, utter no lie, no deceit in the mouth. Deceit in the mouth. You know what deceit is? It's giving people an impression that you're something that you're not. Deceit. Lie is deliberate. You say something that you is not true. Iniquity is just wrong. Well, it's all gone. Been dealt with. Well, I don't know whether you thought that in the glory. This is the kind of person you'd find, afflicted, poor, <laughs> taking refuge in the name. I think some people have got an idea that the people up there are going to be terribly sort of, you know, almost bombastic. Well, we're here. Oh, we got here. They are poor people that didn't get here, you know. Shame, but we're the redeemed. Oh, no, none of that. Here it seems uh, clear that all that's gone. The Lord is their glory. And then I want you just to note... We must close that our joy and satisfaction is contained in the Lord being in the midst, in the phrase, the Lord in the midst, in verse 14 to 16. Zion has finally come to her rest in him. That's her joy and satisfaction, the Lord in the midst. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you sometimes feel sad when you think about the Lord and all he's done for you, that somehow you do want other things with the Lord? That your home is not really holy, the Lord. There are other things you look to as your home, as your security. But you see, through all the trials she's gone, she's come finally home to the Lord. She's come to her final rest in him. Listen to it. She's told, and this to me is just wonderful, she's told to sing, to shout, to be glad and rejoice. Isn't that wonderful? I think it's indicative of unbelievable joy. Sing, shout, be glad, rejoice. Well, I mean, of course, one of those would do for most of us here. If you just sing. But, uh, but this has got to such a wonderful pitch that, that the Holy Spirit uses these four words, indicative of unbelievable joy. Oh, just, just, just let yourself go. Sing, or if you can't sing, shout. Be glad, rejoice but just revel in your Lord. And then notice he hath purified to perfection. He's taken away your judgments. He hath cast out the enemy. Isn't that wonderful? He's purified to perfection. Now there were no need for any more judgment. All gone. Cast out. He hath cast out the enemy. No more enemy. And I shall be very thankful. I remember once reading the Spurgeon said that. The one thing he'd be very thankful for in heaven would shout many hallelujahs over the fact that no more no more devil. Be wonderful, won't it? Remember, Mr. Redbath told me that he would he would be the first at the edge of the bottomless pit to watch him going out. <laughs> you see, there's no more enemy and there's no more judgment. It's gone. It's finished. And the Lord in the midst. And isn't it wonderful? It says here, look, the Lord's in the midst of thee you shall fear evil no more. And then it says, in that day it shall be said, you do not fear Zion, 
let not your hands be slack. Now, isn't that a funny thing to say to them when, when there's no more email? Let not your hands. Do you know what it means? Zion, we're going to get on with the job. That's what it means. You see, we've got a weird idea. We think this world is everything. And we think that when we get to eternity, we're all going to sit down and do nothing. It's very, very different from what the Lord has planned. His idea is that everything begins when we get there. Let not your hands be slack. Don't let them be weak. Strengthen your hands. Why is there any need to strengthen our hands when we when the battle's over? Well, Lord, surely the thing is now. No, let our hands, let our hands hang down. No, says the Lord. Don't let your hands, as a Hebrew Jewish idea, don't let your hands hang down. Strengthen them. Now begins the work, but it's work without sin, work without pain, work without sorrow. Now we're getting on with the job. And you must remember that then all this era of time will be a one great parenthesis. The brackets will have been closed and the Lord will be going on into all that he ever intended at the beginning when he first created a universe and first created the human race. I don't know what is contained for us then, but I'm sure it's going to be absolutely wonderful. So you see, there are busy hands for all eternity. No more evil. We'll not see it. And then I also want you to note that it's not only our joy and satisfaction in his being in the midst, but his joy and satisfaction is, is, is in his being in the midst. The same. In verse 17, the Lord has finally come to his rest in Zion. And that must surely be wonderful. If when the Lord Jesus appeared on this earth, the heavens opened, because it was so wonderful for God. He had the first human being, as it were, in whom he resided. What will it be like when he has his son? When he comes home to his rest, I think that's going to be simply wonderful. Do note it. It says, the mighty one who will save. And the thought is of a mighty man, a mighty warrior. And the Hebrew accent emphasizes the save and the thought is everlasting and ever-present, everlasting salvation. People sometimes wonder, will it all happen again in heaven? Will there ever be a chance for another angel to, to bring about a terrible fall? No. Here we've got it. The mighty one who will save. Ever-present salvation and security. And then he will rejoice over thee with joy and then he will rest in his... He'll be silent. He will, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will be silent in his love. Isn't that amazing? You see, really, Zephaniah is trying to describe emotions. And there are many people in this room and elsewhere amongst God's people who would not give God any feeling like this at all. This really is of a human being near to tears. He's got to a place where all what he's desired and longed for and yearned for and worked for has come to pass. And one moment he's rejoicing with, with joy, he can't breathe. And next moment he's silent, he's dumbfounded. One moment he's, he's breaking out into singing. The next, he's relaxing. You see, you can't really put that into words. 
it's also very interesting that the last of those wills, it says, he will save, he will rejoice over thee with gladness, he will be silent in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. The accent there is on over thee, which is very wonderful if you underline it in your Bibles and think about it. The Lord finally says, he will joy over thee with singing. He will joy over thee with singing. It's a picture of the unbelievable joy of God. Now these verses do in fact contain the most remarkable picture of God in the whole Bible. I think they're more remarkable than even the closing chapters of Revelation because it is a glimpse of the emotions, if we can use such a word, a glimpse of the emotions of God. When finally he obtains what he from the beginning has ever desired. Well, if Zephaniah has no other message, I'm thankful for that. What will it be like? I wonder what will it be like? The final security and blessedness of his own. You will see in those last verses from 18 to 20. Six times I will. I will do this. I will do that. I will do the other. The manifold and abounding grace of God. And I think perhaps the American Revised Standard Version touches the deepest note of all when it translates verse 20 like this. I will bring you home. That's very beautiful. I will bring you home. Isn't that lovely? You know, home has sacred associations in every person. Even if a person has had no home, around the word home, there are the most affectionate and intimate and precious associations and thoughts. I will bring you home. Home. God's home and our home. Brought home. God coming home and we coming home forever. Forever. Together forever. At home for all eternity. That's the book of Zephaniah. And I want to say that I think it is perhaps the most remarkable glimpse into the character of God that is afforded us in the Bible. What will it be like then when you and I finally get home? What will it be like when the Almighty himself enters into what he calls home? What will it be like when you and I finally reach what was always intended to be home for us. No, we have no conception of what it will be like. All we can say is this, it's going to be the heart of a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be the beginning of a new great move on the part of God of which we know very little. But God being God will never be static then you see it is the most wonderful thing to be saved. It is the most wonderful thing to be a child of God. It is the most wonderful thing to be the object of his jealousy. Shall we praise the Lord together?